Um, so we've been in the seven uh, churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Um, these are seven uh, historical churches that were in Asia Minor. And, um, and in the book of Revelation, it begins by Jesus writing to these seven churches uh, his instructions to them. And it's a love letter that he is writing to his churches to, uh, to share with them. And we're, we're at the church of Thyatira, um, which is the last one in chapter 3. And the interesting thing about um, Thyatira is that it is among the seven um, cities that have letters written to them. It's the most insignificant. In fact, if you were to try to find it, it's like just this little tiny um, blip in the middle of a modern city where they think Thyatira was. It's like, it's just, it, it, it doesn't stand out in hardly any way like the other seven do. And yet, um, Jesus has the most to say to the least significant city. In fact, he has the highest praise to give to the smallest place which should tell you that sometimes bigger isn't always better. Um, these people have a lot going for them, but Jesus corrects them nonetheless. So let's read what Jesus has to say. Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira I write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service, and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, we've been looking at kind of the common theme among all these seven letters, and, and Jesus is constantly asking his people again and again and again the question, do you love me? As I mentioned before, it's a love letter. It's, re- it's written from a bridegroom to his bride, and he's constantly asking Dear, dear bride, do you love me? And if you remember to, to Ephesus, he says, do you love me with all your heart, not just your mind, not just your theology? And to Smyrna, he asks the question, do you love me enough to battle against persecution and suffering that's going to come? To Pergamum, 
He asks the question, do you love me enough to battle against your own hypocrisy and your own sin? And now to Thyatira, he asks the same question, but he asks it this way. Do you love me enough to battle against your own tolerance of evil? Do you love me enough to be intolerant? Um, so I'm hoping to draw out a few things from this text. Um, and, and, and that's this. How is it, how do we and how do we tend to view evil? How does God tend to view evil? Why do we tolerate it? And how do we stand? How do we tend to view evil? How does God see it? Why do we tolerate it? And then how do we, how can we stand against it? Um, as I mentioned, Jesus has many good things to say about this community. And yet, he has this condemnation for them. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Now, we tend to think of the word tolerance, or at least that word tolerance in our 21st century uh, culture, um, rarely ever is seen with a negative connotation to it, right? I mean, if you want to be respected, if you want to be loved, if you want to have the the pleasure of the people that are around you in 21st century America, the best way to do it is to be tolerant of everything. It's just to, to just to say everything's okay. You know, you're okay, I'm okay, we're okay. Um, don't ever say a negative or harsh word. Don't ever correct anyone for anything. Don't ever say anything bad about anyone. It, it, just tolerate. Now, we'll get into exactly what they're tolerating, but um, I just want you to see this is actually the opposite problem that the community in Ephesus had. Because uh, in Ephesus, uh, they were really intolerant. I don't know if you remember this about them, but they stood up against all kinds of heresies and they kicked out heretics from their midst and they held on to the truth. But with, the problem with Ephesus was in keeping the truth about Jesus, they had lost their love for Jesus. So it was almost like they were those Bible scholars that knew everything about uh, the Word and could quote it verbatim and tell you exactly where you weren't living according to it. But they lost their love for the one that that same Bible speaks about. They were all head and no heart. And certainly there, there are churches that are uh, very, very guilty of that. Where they say, like, we've got, like, the correct doctrine, but when you actually look at how they love people and how they love God, you go, it's just cold. It's just void. But this isn't the problem in Thyatira. Thyatira has the opposite problem. They love Jesus and they love people really well and it's every, it's evident in everything that they do. You, you, it's the kind of community where you spend a little bit of time among them and you're like, man, these people like love really well and they're just really faithful to Jesus and one another and they seem to persevere and they, you just want to be around them and they're just a, an amazing group of people. And, and one of the things I love is that Jesus says to them, one of the most amazing things, He says, I see how you've grown. I see the way that you've grown over time. You're, you're more loving and you're more faithful and you're more perseverant than you were when you began. Well done. Keep at it. Keep going. I'm not going to put any other burdens on you. And I, I 
I, I really think that if Jesus were looking at our community, He would say many of those same things. And just, I just want you to know, before we get to like the, <laughs> what, what He has to correct, that Jesus is proud of us. That he, he loves to see when we're obedient to the Spirit and when we lay down our lives for one another. But the problem that was happening in, in this community is that they were letting heretical people and heretical teaching creep into their community. They were too tolerant. Now, a, mo- a modern American would say, how in the world could there be such a thing? But God says, I, I love your life and I, I see it as beautiful and keep going at it. But you need to know, in your tolerance for evil... Um, you're actually burdening yourself. It's interesting that he mentions that idea of not putting an additional burden on them, but, but he wants them to know that if, if you're tolerating evil teaching, evil people, evil ideas, then you're putting a burden on yourself and you're allowing others to put a burden on you that I didn't put there. Now, what, what exactly is that burden? Well, it's hidden to that. When in, in the whole phrase, um, eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And, and it's funny because we read that and we go, like, how do those go together? You know, like, it seems, they don't seem to be the same thing. Like, what is it about those things that go together? Well, the reason that they go together is because in Thyatira, as many other cities, um, they, were, they were based on a trade economy. It was a city of commerce. And even though it wasn't very large, it was kind of a trade stop in the Roman Empire. And, and this city in particular was known for one certain commodity, that, that they were a textile industry. They made cloth. And they were specifically known for making a certain kind of purple cloth, actually, that was very popular in Roman society. And... Uh, it signified, if you could afford it, power and prestige, some kind of connection to royalty. And so Roman citizens, if they, they would put a sash for as much as they could afford onto their toga. And kind of the, the more purple you had, the higher up you were. And so they would come through and they would buy up these wares. And it, so it's this whole idea of like having authority. Which is, by, by just um, as an aside, that was the whole reason that the Roman uh, soldiers dressed Jesus in purple before they beat him and mocked him. Because they said, you call yourself a king? Here, have this, and we'll show you what kind of king you are. But, so, so it, it signified um, greatness. And so, and people would have come from all over the Roman Empire to trade these textiles and then to pass them on to other people. Now, here's the thing. In this city, in order to make it, in order to be somebody, because this was, I mean, there were other industries, but this was the main one, you needed to, to join the local trade guild. Now, this sounds like a really amazing idea, like a really interesting, sexy idea, doesn't it? Like... A trade guild, you know? But, but a trade guild was something like a modern union. Um, it, it's not as much in the U.S., but it used to be that if you wanted a job in a certain industry, you couldn't break into that industry unless you were part of the union, right? 
You, if you weren't a union employee, you had you couldn't be in steel. You couldn't be in pipe fitting. You couldn't be in these these positions. You had to play along with the the local union. And it was similar to life in Thyatira. But the difference between sort of modern unions and these first century trade guilds is that trade guilds were always attached to some kind of idol, some kind of deity, some kind of religious practice. And every trade guild had their own personal god that they worshipped and asked for favor so that they could be successful in their trade. And the way that they often worshipped that god was by sacrificing and throwing these enormous feasts. And they were like the world's wildest parties that were full of all kinds of immorality and they would sacrifice the animals to their specific god and then everybody would eat of that animal. I mean, it it was crazy. I don't know if you think of modern unions and are like, yeah, those guys are nuts, you know, I mean, they just, they party like nobody. But that's the, that was the reputation of the people that were part of these guilds at the time. Now, here's the thing. In order to make it in Thyatira, you were under tremendous pressure to associate yourself with one of these guilds. To go to the feast, to participate in the sacrifices and everything that went on there. And, and because they had enormous power in society. And if, if, if you happen to be a Christian who's selling purple cloth, You had no place in the market to sell it if you didn't also participate in the guild. And so for Christians to say, no, we're not going to participate in these things, you were putting your livelihood on the line. You were were saying, I'm in rejecting this thing. I I am in a sense rejecting my own success. And so that kind of pressure created attention in the city, among the Christians. And there were, there were Christians who said, no, we can't participate in these things and we can't endorse those who do. And then on the other side of the, the spectrum, you had Christians who said, it's fine. You know, I mean, go ahead and do it. I mean, God doesn't care. Jesus doesn't mind. Just, just go and do it. But then like right in the middle, you had most of the Christians and they knew that they shouldn't participate but they were too weak to stand against it. They were the tolerators. They were the ones who said, yeah, it's bad, it's probably, we're not supposed to do it, but we have no choice to, 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 but to play along. It's a necessary evil. A necessary evil. And so what do you do with a necessary evil? You tolerate it. You let it go on. And, and the, the whole reason why this tension was growing and people were being more tolerant is because you, you had leaders who would come along and, and try to get the community to sort of sacrifice on their commitments and their convictions. And one of them, Jesus labels <clears throat> Jezebel. <clears throat> and he says this about her in verse 20. You tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and into eating the food sacrificed to idols. So apparently there there was a a woman within the church who had a voice, had had a position of leadership or authority, and it's not about the fact that she was a woman as opposed to a man. It's a, it's the fact that she was coming along and saying 
look, you can participate in these feasts. It's okay. It doesn't affect your spiritual life at all. Go ahead and eat. Go and enjoy the food. Enjoy the alcohol. Enjoy the promiscuity. In fact, it seems like she's saying that there are what Jesus called Satan's deeper secrets. That somehow she's saying, in fact, if you go to these things, you'll be like even better than the people that don't. You'll have like access to a knowledge, to a spiritual life that, that is deeper than the one that you enjoy now. I mean, talk about an ancient argument, right? Just, just go ahead and eat the fruit and you'll get the knowledge. You'll get the wisdom. It'll, it can all be yours. God knows you want it. God knows you need it. Just, just go after it. It won't result in death. Basically what she's saying is, you don't want to be like those no fun legalists who always talk about holiness but never get invited to the party, do you? I mean, nobody wants to be one of those guys on a Friday night. Because you miss out on the real good life, don't you? This way of thinking in the Christian community has not diminished one bit in 2,000 years. It really hasn't gone away. Uh, In fact, in some ways, in 21st century America, we've perfected it. Because essentially the message is now for the church in so many different pockets and so many different places that you can have your Jesus, but don't deprive yourself of what the world has to offer you to. Right? You don't need to be childish and, and, and obey all these kinds of rules and watch uh, about what you watch and what you eat and where you go and what you do. You're, you're deeper than that. You're more mature than that. You're more spiritual than that. You're smarter and more sophisticated than those people with the list of rules that they can and can't do. You know, I mean... Think about how you've tolerated evil in your own life. I mean, have you ever said, you know, I, I can watch whatever show I want. And it doesn't matter if it's on network TV or on Netflix or where it comes from. It doesn't matter how much they glorify violence or drug use or how much nudity is in the first episode. If I just get past the first episode, then the plot really thickens and it rich, enriches and people start to care about one another. And they, 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 there's all these great ethics that I can pull from this show, but you just have to swallow the bitter pill on the front end to get to the good stuff later. It doesn't affect my heart. Or, or the lie that you can, you, know, you can drink whatever you want and smoke whatever you want. And it doesn't erode your relationship to Jesus or to his family. It has no effect on your integrity or your holiness, right? That, that you have this device in your pocket that promises you entertainment and satisfaction no matter what time of day, no matter where you are on planet Earth. And, I mean, the fact that I look at it 16 times a day, whenever I'm bored, whenever I'm sad, whenever I'm depressed, whenever I'm angry, and it cheers me up and makes me feel better, it has no effect on my prayer life and the fact that I can bring my cares to Jesus for Him to bear the weight of them, right? I... I I can spend 
all this time on social media. And I can scour Instagram and Facebook wishing that I had that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that vacation or that family that other people have. And it, it doesn't cause me to, to stumble in my walk with God or, or lessen my gratitude or contentment that I have with Him. I can climb the ladder of my company even though that company is bent on greed and self-interest. And it never affects me. It's like we're saying, I, I can inhale what the world has. I, just, or I, I can smoke what the world has. I just don't inhale it. You know? We call these things necessary evils as though we should be tolerating them. As though it's okay for them to be in our hearts and in our lives and, and streaming through our eyes and through our ears. And we tell ourselves it's just what you have to do in order to be somebody in our world, in order to stay relevant or to stay in society. That you can follow Jesus, but don't, don't forget about the importance of maintaining your cultural re- relevance. You have to watch certain things. You have to do certain things. It's just part of being an American these days. And Jesus comes to us and he goes, Is it? Or, or are we so swept up in what our culture says is uh, good and right behavior that we have no idea what Jesus is actually saying to his church? What are you tolerating these days? What are you tolerating in your own life? What are you tolerating in the lives of the people around you that you care deeply about? I, just, I want to pull back the, the veil on that phrase a little bit because 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 through 22 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. You know, what is Paul saying there? He's saying, Everything that comes into your world is a prophecy. It's a, it's a word. It's a voice. It's a claim. It, it's, it's trying to get you to believe something. Everything is. Every TV show you watch, every conversation that you have around the cubicle, every, every time that you're on your phone, every person that you're around, there are messages that are being communicated to you And what Paul is saying is that we should be incredibly careful to know that there are only two kinds. There are those kinds that draw you into what God is saying to you, which is what the Spirit is doing, and those are good. Listen to those and don't be on the lookout for the ways that God is speaking into your world because it may come from the most unexpected places. But at the same time, know that there is another voice that will quench that same Spirit's ability to draw you to Jesus. And it's going to drag you away. And we should be the kind of people when we hear a voice where we stop and test that voice against what we know about Jesus and His desire for His bride. 
And anything that doesn't draw us into Him, we should be the kind of people that are intolerant of that prophecy. Does that make sense? Because if we believe that the evil we harbor in our lives is somehow going to draw us into God's presence and make us more like Jesus, according to this passage, we're fools. And we're fooling ourselves. In fact, if that's you, then you're quenching the Spirit's ability to speak into your life. And if you're wondering, like, why haven't I heard from God in a while? Maybe we haven't been obeying this passage. Maybe our ears have been hijacked by our culture. Maybe we're far too tolerant. So many times I think we accommodate evil. We make space for it. We, we think that by not dealing with it, we're somehow going to be more like Jesus. And we make Jesus into a wimp. <laughs> the same Jesus that came in with a whip to, to his temple and threw over the, the tables and cast out the people that were doing evil in the courtyards of the temple of God. And we turn him into, into a nan, like he, he's just into this weakling. See, the, the tendency to tolerate evil is what Jesus holds against his bride. They're tolerating it in their own lives and they're tolerating it in the lives of, of the other people that they call family. And it's destroying them. That's the message. I remember one time um, back when I was in campus ministry, we used to have these big events um, downtown in Philly and all the campus ministries from the various colleges would get together couple times a year to like worship and pray together for our city and um, get teaching to kind of go back out and and often these these gatherings we we would do like a worship gathering for a couple hours and then um, everybody would sort of hit the streets and we would talk to people about Jesus we would pray for folks and um, this one particular meeting we were down by South Street and um, the meeting had already started and and there was music playing and I was sitting towards the back because um, our campus ministry always got there last. <laughs> um, so we're sitting towards the back and, and this guy comes stumbling into the gathering. And you can tell, like, I mean, we're all like college students with a few adults around. And this guy who you can tell there's something really off about him. He comes stumbling into the gathering and he's, at first he sits in the back and he's sort of quiet and he's not doing anything. We're like, hey... If you need to get off the streets, like, that's cool. Like, have a seat. You're, you know, you're welcome here. But then, like, as he starts to, like, sober up a little bit, he, he sort of starts to, like, gauge the room. And he finds, like, there are a, a group of, of um, women who are from Temple University kind of on the other side towards the back. And you can tell, like, you can see, like, the idea dawn in his mind. Like, I'm going to go and sit by these ladies. And so he sort of makes his way over to them and he starts out like a little bit away and then he gets a little bit closer and then he starts to talk to them but he's talking so loud you can hear him like over everything that's going on in the meeting. And you can tell like he's being really inappropriate and he's starting to like put his arm around one of them. Now let me ask you, 
What would have happened if we did nothing to remove that man? If we just tolerated it? If we just let him continue to terrorize those girls and to distract from the prayer that was happening in that meeting? Is that love? Of course not. See, we tend to think of tolerance as equal to love. That if you love, if you're a loving person, you will tolerate absolutely and you will absolutely tolerate anything. But tolerance is a cheap imitation of love. It's a hollow love. It's... it's not, a, it's not love at all. In fact, is there any question that the loving thing to do in that situation is to kick that guy out? Of course not. It's the loving thing to do for the women that he was uh, intimidating. It was the loving thing to do for him. In fact, when we went out later on, a group of my friends ended up finding that guy. And, um, and they were sitting down with him and they were engaging him and they were praying for him. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I just, I don't know what came over me. And so they prayed for him and they shared Jesus with him and they loved on him. And that was the appropriate venue to do that. But it was just as appropriate and that conversation never would have been able to happen had we not kicked that guy the heck out of there. (laughs) Because as long as he was in that place where he could harm God's people, that's not loving to anyone. In fact, it's the unloving thing. It would have been the unloving thing to allow him to remain unconfronted. And yet, this is exactly what's happening in Thyatira. And so, please know that Jesus, when he thinks of love, love for his people, love for the world, he does not compromise when it comes to the preservation of his family. He loves his kids too much. The same person who spoke the words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That same one is completely intolerant of anyone or anything that would lead His family towards evil and away from His loving care. Jesus is the most loving person and the most intolerant person all in one. And that's, that's the whole reason why he says in verse 22, I'll, I'll cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Now, it's easy to see that and go, wow, that's like vindictive, Jesus, you know? What, like, man. He's, I mean, is Jesus really saying like, if you don't worship me, I'm going to snap my fingers and give you boils? Like, is that, is, is this the Jesus that we worship? But you have to know, this is Jesus warning his bride that there's no such thing as an autonomous life. You're either walking with me, he says, who's your loving bridegroom, or you're in bed with the enemy. And because I know that you're created to walk with me, 
And because I gave my life so that you could be washed clean as my bride, if you try to go back to the spiritual death that I rescued you from, yes, I will, in my great love for you, hand you over to the suffering that that death deserves. It's a warning light to bring you to your senses. I was doing some renovation in our family room, and I'm pulling all the, like this old paneling off the wall and we're going to replace it with drywall. And um, all the outlets, because we're doing this work, are now exposed. And uh, Anthony, our three-year-old, has never been interested in electrical outlets before. (laughs) Until now. (laughs) Somehow now, they, they glow like against the backdrop of the of the like the back side of the the other side of the drywall and the studs like that little white em- is like a little ember of like ooh I wonder what's in there and and so he's ta- like he's heading for one and I can see it on his face he's got the finger out it's totally exposed and unprotected and like when he's like 6 inches away from it I realize what's happening and I I scream at him Anthony no and you know what he did he cried like I've never seen him cry before. Like he just broke down, like sat down, like wet, and he's just a mess. And I'm like trying to console him, trying to bring him back. And I'm like, I had to say that, buddy, because you were going to get really hurt if I let you go there. And of course, he doesn't. <laughs> What's that? He'd never do it again, yeah. Not now, I hope. But here's the thing I realized. He has no idea the danger that he was in. And even when I as a dad try to explain to him the danger that he was in and why I reacted the way that I did, he doesn't get it. All he knows is that daddy was angry at him and scolded him for something that he thought was very innocent. How often... Do we react the exact same way when God puts up a restriction or when he shouts to us, no, this isn't good for you, and we plug our ears and we press on with that finger pointed forward directly into danger? Jesus is loving us when he's warning us of the suffering that will result from our tolerance of evil. And that doesn't matter if it's tolerance in our own heart or tolerance in the heart of someone that we care about. It's the loving thing for us that Jesus would intercede for us. And and by the way, it's the loving thing for you to intercede on behalf of other people. To tell other people of the danger of the direction of their lives apart from Jesus and to be perfectly honest and clear and direct about the consequences of that decision-making is the loving thing to do. Because, I mean, look at Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only few find it. Later on, Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, 
um, probably thinking about this verse, asked Jesus, can, hey, can you show us the way? And Jesus goes, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the source of life. And so we have to be honest about this because if we say to ourselves, you know, I see myself as a very tolerant person. And I, I tolerate both, I tolerate anything. I tolerate both roads, God. In fact, I'm, who am I to judge? I think I'm a little bit more loving than you are in my tolerance. Is that really love? Is that really love according to what Jesus says? The only loving thing to do is to lead people to me. That's his message. And it doesn't, if someone comes along with an alternative message that you can somehow um, keep me on speed dial and go and have anything that you desire at the same time, that person is leading you to the, to the wide way. In 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And I, I, I don't know if we're often guilty of delighting in evil. I mean, may, maybe we are, like, if we have an enemy, maybe we have a Jezebel in our life and we're like, man, I can't wait for that person to get what's coming to them. Then you're obviously not listening to the, these words because Jesus never delighted in your evil before you came to know him. You should never delight in someone else's evil. In fact, Jesus doesn't delight in Jezebel's evil either, right? Because he says, I've waited for her to repent. I long for her even to turn around. I want my daughter back. But I I think mostly we're not guilty of delighting in evil, but we're just guilty of allowing it. Because we think that that's the loving thing to do, when in reality it's the cowardly thing to do. And we need to call it as such. Jesus said, if you, if you follow this woman's way, who claims to be a prophet and her teaching, it's going to lead to sickness first and then death later. Now, here, here's the thing. Um, bec- most of them are not going down that road, right? Most, it seems like from the letter that most of them aren't really going along with the heresy. They don't agree with this person who gets this label. They, 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 they would say, if you were to poll them separately, they would say, yeah, I really don't think it's right. And yet they refuse to confront her. They refuse to escort her out of the building. They continue to let her go on leading and influencing and engaging when the loving thing to do would be to say, stop. Can I just ask, like, why, why do we do this? Yes, you get to respond to this one. I need a drink and, a, and maybe to sit down. <laughs> but why, are we, why do we tolerate it? When there's a destructive influence, and maybe it's in our hearts, maybe it's in the hearts of the people that are around us, why do we refuse to confront it? You have any thoughts? Yeah, we don't we don't want the messiness that comes from being involved. Like 
If you step into somebody else's mess, you're going to get mess on you. And I, I don't know about you, but that I feel this way a lot. Like, I just don't want other people's mess on me. And I just think I've got enough messes of my own. When is that really the loving thing to do? Jesus himself does the confronting because the community is unwilling to. Like in this particular situation, he initiates by writing the letter and saying, I'm calling this woman to repent. And what is he, what's the response that he gets? Does she, does she come to her senses? It doesn't seem like it. Right? So, like, if Jesus can confront, like, can be intolerant of evil and confront someone in a loving way, and they turn their back on Jesus, that, that should tell you it's also going to happen to you. And that you could be okay with it. Because it's not your responsibility. Like, he's the one who searches hearts and minds. He's the one who, bring, who leads people because of his kindness into repentance and restoration of relationship. Um, and so, that, so, so then what is the responsibility? The responsibility is just to be obedient to Jesus and to leave the results to him, right? But because we often take on the results as well as the initiation, that ends up clamming us up because we think, what if I don't do it the right way? What if I, you know... Um, what if they don't listen? Then I'm, you know, now I've got more work to do, maybe. I don't know. But, and that could be hard. Lindsay, and then. Yeah, so we, we run the risk, really, of being, of having our love mislabeled as hatred. Um, and that stops us, too, right? And so we, I in, in that sense, we kind of take our eyes off of Jesus, and we put our eyes on to the, the person that we want to speak the truth and love to. But and I, I think, honestly, we're, 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 we feel like our identity would be harmed if they think less of us. And because we're more worried about their opinion of us than we are about God's, we, we remain silent. What were you going to say, Ruth? Yeah. I know that's a big one for me. Yeah, Jacob. Yeah, one one of the questions that I often use in that same vein is, is uh, how's that working for you? <laughs> right, because you can defend yourself to the hills, um, but if that if your if what you're tolerating in your own life is I mean, we can see the writing on the wall long before the the end comes, you know. So, so if you just hey, how's that is how's that working for you? And then what I'll often do is I'll go to like Galatians five with the fruit of the spirit and say, is this thing that you're engaging in, is this idea that you're playing with, is this belief that you're uh, that you've let settle into your heart, is it leading you to greater experiences of joy? Or peace? Do you find yourself being a more patient person for having believed what you're currently believing? Is, are, are you more gentle than you used to be? More loving? Do you have more self-control than you once had? Or does it seem like you're dominated by it? If the answer to any of those questions is no, 
then it's not a fruit of the Spirit. You know it doesn't come from the Spirit. First Thessalonians would say that's, you're, you're actually quenching the Spirit. That's the test. Because the Spirit always brings those things, those five things in abundance to our lives. <clears throat> yeah, that, that is, especially for us leaders, that can be a very difficult thing to do because our tendency then, out of love and protection and care, is to create rule systems that, har- that protect against those destructive things. But then those rules end up becoming a box that we all sort of live by. And if you, if you can live by a, li- a list of rules, you no longer need the Spirit. And there are so many places where they have so many rules of what you can and cannot do that you're like, well, I just checked the box on, all the, on this list of 150 things and then I don't really need the Spirit to guide me anymore. And that's death as well. You're just, you know, you're, you're living according to a rule system as, as, as opposed to the, the spirit of someone who will move you towards life instead of towards death. So we, have, we always have to be careful of that. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely might. Thank you for it. I mean, we, and we have to be, in some senses, okay with that, the, the consequence that comes with speaking the truth in love. Um, and uh, and to know, I think the other thing that, that came out in what you said, Becky, is is um, that when it comes to Jesus' work in someone, he always plays the long game. You know, he, he's always committed to their transformation over the whole, not just the 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 day. And so, if you if you can't see the the effect that the the gospel is having on someone's heart even if you've been obedient to speak it into their life, then intolerance for that person can look like you just saying, I'm committed to pray for you. Uh, I, won't, I won't tolerate this in my own heart. And so I, the, the way that that's going to take form in our relationship is just through silent prayer, you know. Um, and that may be over the course of months or years or decades, but be committed to that. And, and know that like, Jesus gave this woman a long time to come to her senses. And that God is gracious with us in that, you know? Far more gracious than we are because we want them to, like, change now, you know? Some, I saw a couple other, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think we actually have to be very careful about that. Um, and to which shouldn't actually hold us back from the speaking part, but it should be accompanied by uh, a life that backs up what we say and how we live a life of love towards the people that we're willing to correct. And here's where I, I think Christians often get off track, is that we, we either tolerate and we don't say anything and we just think that that's loving, or we fall into the Ephesian trap, which is, I'm just going to correct everyone, but I'm not going to actually love them. And I, I was listening to a leader talking about the way that the, the, the church should operate in the world, and he, he said this, which I thought was an amazing way to put it. He goes, um, we should be people that are willing to tip over the apple cart, but we should also be the first ones on the ground to pick up the apples when they fall. And so, like, you know, so think about how those two things play out. So, you know, you, you see somebody who's engaging in a behavior and a way of thinking or way of believing that you know is harming them, 
and in love you say, I'm not going to let this go, I'm going to speak it. But is, one of the things that's amazing about God is that when we start to feel the effects of our own sin, He's right there with a way out to, to, to bring us to restoration. And we should be able to do the very same thing for people. Yeah, I remember when, um, you know, when I was in college, my roommate did the same thing for me. And I, it was the weirdest thing I've ever, I had ever experienced to that point. So I, I was in a re- this relationship that was incredibly harmful for me um, with, with a, another young woman. And, and I remember, like, my roommate, I got off the phone with her one day, and um, my roommate starts to speak to me about this relationship. And I was like, my back is like up against the wall. I was like, what are you doing right now? Like, how, how, how can you say some of these things? Yes, I, they're probably true, but like, who says this, you know? Like, who points these things out to anybody? And he, and he would just say again and again, like, I, I want you to know this in love because this is going to lead to some really bad things in your life. And I didn't believe him at the time. Um, in fact... I started to share less with him um, what was going on in my world. I started to close myself off to that relationship. I couldn't do it completely because he's my roommate. But, but I started to close myself off a little bit to him as a result of him being honest and being intolerant of what he saw as destructive in my life. But here's the thing. When that relationship went sour and like it just blew up in my face and I, I, and I knew I knew he was right, um, I was, again, I was on the phone in our room and he comes in and I've got tears streaming down my face. And he didn't say a word to me. He just put the phone down and he picked me up and he just hugged me and embraced me for like 10 minutes. And I just wept like with my brother because I, he was right on the one hand, but he didn't use his rightness against me. He was right there to pick up the apples when they fell. And I just think, man, we got to be that same kind of people all the time who, who, who don't go, we're, we're not the kind of people that go, well, you made your bed, now you lay in it. Because that's not what Jesus does. <laughs> Jesus laid in our bed of shame <laughs> when he was nailed to the cross so that we could be freed from that. Like, and so we, God, we should be that same kind of people that are willing to do that. No matter what, no matter how heinous we, we think the sin was. You know, I mean, the, what's the news been about this week? What was like the number one news story that was like all over everybody's feed? It was like, it was the murder trial of the, the cop who shot that guy's brother. And, and when she was sentenced, what did he do? He embraced her. He said, I forgive you and I call you to Jesus. I want you to know the love that he has for you. And then he asked the judge if he could get down and, and, and embrace his brother's murderer. And then the judge follows suit. That's the part that didn't get as much press. The judge who sentenced her got off the bench and came down and embraced the same woman. Like, yeah, I love that. Isn't that great? She said, here's my Bible. This is what's... God has given me life through this and I want to give you life. You're going to have a whole lot of time to read it. <laughs> but but I, mean, what, I made a joke of that. But what she was saying is, don't waste the pain. Don't waste your prison cell. It's a grace to you. 
is what she was saying. Don't, don't think that somehow God is angry at you and that He's removed His presence. He's put you in a confined situation so that you'll have no choice but to embrace Him. God is so loving to do that for us. He's, and, and we should be the first ones to get off the bench to do the same thing for other people. Shouldn't we? I mean, I that should lead us to incredible boldness. we got to close. You guys have... You're awesome. Um, I, I just as we close, I want to. I just want to call us back to this um, this idea of this morning star. Jesus reminds us that we have to those that are bold, to those that are intolerant in their love for others, that He promises the morning star. And um, most scholars think that. Um, what would that be? astrologically, that, that the morning star in the first century was probably Venus. And what, what made Venus unique was that um, it was one of the brightest stars in the entire sky. But as the, as the dawn came in, it was the only star that didn't fade away. It was there through the night and even into the morning. You could look... Um, in the morning sky and still see that same star and and know that it endured the night. And later on in Revelation, Jesus says, I am the morning star. And then here he says, I have the authority to give you this morning star, which is to say, I have the authority to give you myself as you speak the truth in love to people. And I am the one who endures. I endured for you. I, I, I overcame a, the temptation to live a life of sin and I lived the perfection that you couldn't. And I, I was tempted in the wilderness to, to, to give in to Satan's lies and I overcame those with God's truth. I, 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 I had the temptation to, to defend myself before the authorities, but I overcame their accusations and I submitted myself to death, even death on a cross so that you could be free. I, I, I went into the ground and I overcame the darkness of death and rose three days later so that you could know me and have me in your heart and in your life. And I just, if we walked around this world knowing that Jesus was our morning star, that we could endure no matter what, that we could say no to the evil that we often tend to give into because He's the one who can stand for us. And if we, even in our moment of temptation, just turned our eyes to Him and said, God, be the bronze feet because my ground is crumbling beneath me, that He would. That as you're racked with fear over speaking the truth to a friend who is going off the rails and you want to shirk back from that because you're afraid of what they're going to think of you, that, that Jesus would be the morning star and that you would see His eyes burning for you and you'd think, it doesn't matter what anyone's opinion is of me because your opinion is what matters. That's a great point. So, so yeah, and, that, and that's that same thing. Because Jesus is your morning star, you can even receive the, the, the painful... Um, what could be the painful um, 
spoken word of another brother and sister who's trying to come to you in love but and is doing it imperfectly. And you can know that you can receive that criticism and still be okay because Jesus will carry you through it and make you new. You know? We should be the most correctable, the least offended people on planet Earth because Jesus is our morning star. All right, let's, let's stop and pray. Father, we thank you that, that you sent Jesus, who is our bright morning star, that outlasts the darkness. God, as, thank you that <clears throat> even if we've been okay, even if we've been complacent with evil in our own hearts or evil in the hearts of other people, that you haven't been complacent, you aren't complacent about those things, but you promise to still be with us and not forsake us, even in our complacency. God, we, we, we want to grow into people that are intolerant in our love. And we need you to do it. Holy Spirit, would you come and transform us into those kinds of people? for our good, for the good of this community, for the good of the world that desperately needs the narrow way to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.